I'm Phil Rickaby, and I've been a writer and performer for almost 30 years. But I've realized that I don't really know as much as I should about the theater scene outside of my particular Toronto bubble. Now, I'm on a quest to learn as much as I can about the theater scene across Canada. So join me as I talk with mainstream theater creators you may have heard of, and indie artists you really should know, as we find out just what it takes to be stage-worthy. If you value the work that I do on Stageworthy, please consider leaving a donation either as a one-time thing or on a recurring monthly basis. Stageworthy is created entirely by me, and I give it to you free of charge with no advertising or other sponsored messages. Your continuing support helps me to cover the cost of producing and distributing the show. Just four people donating $5 a month would help me cover the cost of podcast hosting alone. Help me continue to bring you this podcast. You can find a link to donate in the show notes, which you can find in your podcast app or at the website at stageworthy.ca. Now, on to the show. Deborah Shaw is the writer and performer of Her. David Agro is the director and dramaturg. They both joined me to talk about the new production of Her, running at the Red Sandcastle Theatre from September 6th to 10th. In this conversation, we talk about the origins of the play, how this new incarnation has changed since the play's premiere at the 2018 Toronto Fringe, and much more. Here's our conversation. Which which one of you would like to tell me about her? I will. So I had an idea one day, just sitting around, and it was a what if. What if, and it's a very extreme what if, and the person I was with, he said, well, just write it. I finally felt like writing it a couple of years later, and it just sort of took off. Basically, it's about uh, consequences. Every every uh, decision you make, there is a consequence. Two days, hmm. ten days, a thousand days later. But there is something. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. that's basically what this is about. It's just set in a different time and a different person, of course. Um, could I ask what the original what if was? No. What? <laughs> <laughs> that's fair. That's fair. It'll give away my story. <laughs> I understand. I understand. Um, so now, what was you said that you felt like you could write it a couple few years later? Um, what was that? How how had the idea changed? Um, when you sat down to write it, uh, or had it changed? It had. What was the evolution? It hadn't changed at all. Um, I, that original day, I sort of wrote a little bit of an outline and then I just let it lie. And when I felt, um, the impulse to write, it was time to write it. It just poured out. I stopped writing to do a little bit of research and then it just continued to almost write itself. And funny enough, David and I in rehearsal yesterday, as we, you know, finished the play and we were talking about it. I said, I had the ending before I had the beginning. Huh. And so everything else just filled itself in. 
bit by bit. And then, then the story of David and I catching up. <laughs> yeah, that that's that's where her really really took off on a TTC bus. Well, tell me tell me that story. Uh, Deborah, I think you should because uh, it was yeah you initiated the whole thing. Well, I was coming home from a play. Uh, friends of mine were doing Measure for Measure in the theater we are doing our production in uh, mm -hmm. the Red Sandcastle, and I met David on the Sherburne bus, and he was coming. I think you were coming from the opera, perhaps, but. David was, um, we were both working at the University of Toronto at the time, and he was getting ready to retire from that. And I said, what are you planning to do when you retire? Knowing he was not going to just sit on his laurels. And he said, I'm, I'm thinking of getting back into theater. And I said, oh, well, guess what? I have written a play and I want to submit it for the 2018 Fringe Festival. And would you be interested in directing? And he said, well, send it to me. Let me have a look at it. And then, David, I'm going to pass it to you. Yeah, well, so I looked at it and I liked it. And I said, okay, we can, we can really do something with this. Do you want to work with me as dramaturg and director? And Deb was all for it. And our working relationship from that moment on was was a very 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 good one because uh, uh all of the input that i had about fleshing out the script and 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 so forth was uh deb ran with any idea that i that i came up with and so by the time the Fringe Lottery came around and we won it. We were really ready to, you know, give it our all and get this thing into production shape. And we did. And so the first, the first production of this was then at the Fringe that year. And then COVID hit and uh, we had time to sit and and think, and we ended up doing a couple of workshops, um, of, of, um, altered versions of the play, um, where we rethought things, where we thought deeper about things. And at the end of that process, Deb said, well, I want to, I want to, I want to give this a, a public run again. And I said, yeah, I think it's definitely ready for that. Now it needs that. Now we need, we need an audience involved in, um, to see and re respond to the work we've done. And so that's where we're at now. Uh, what in, in terms of the, those, those, those workshops that you did over the, those, those COVID years, um, what kind of things did you learn about, about this show during those workshops? I learned one, that David is a taskmaster. Um, and when he came <laughs> back with the script, he had some ideas. He reread what the critics had said, the reviewers had said, also audience members. Um, and we got 
very favorable responses from audiences. People would stop us to tell us their personal story, their family story, and which was incredibly touching. Uh, so David really listened to that. We read them and just made some minor adjustments for our first workshop. We went, as David said, a little bit deeper. And then we sort of put it on hold for a little bit. And then it was time to do it again. I felt I would like to try it again, another workshop. And David even went a little deeper as the dramaturg. And that has blossomed even more so that I feel the story is far more compelling. The relationships are far more compelling. Um, the, the, the what if moment is far more heartbreaking. Hmm. Yeah. The, that's interesting saying the, uh, the relationships between the characters are more compelling and it's true. Um, but the, uh, it begs the question, there's only one person in this show. So what are the relationships? So I think that's something that we, we really would like to talk about. Yeah, absolutely. Performance absolutely. style yeah. of, of this, of this piece. Yeah. Please tell me about that. Well, Deborah is the only person on stage and she is Ilsa, the central character of the play. But she is not the only character on the stage. There are two or three characters on stage at any one time. Um, Deborah does not play those characters. She plays to them. The audience doesn't see them, but Deborah, in her interaction with them, brings them to life hmm. for the audience. And I, I, I think that's a, a fascinating process and uh, something that an actor can do and it it unite to me it unites the audience and the and the performer in the same active imagination and it's tremendously effective um i i've done it myself as an actor in uh in solo shows that I've created for myself as well. So I'm very familiar with the style. So working with Deb on it, um, was just a natural outgrowth of, of the work I had done myself, but it's, um, yeah, audiences, uh, some people are find it a little off putting because it's obviously something different. Um, but if you let yourself, if you just give into it, let yourself go with it. Uh, I have actually had people come up to me after a performance and talk about the, the, the characters on stage and then, and then have to stop themselves because they realized, you know, in fact, there's only one actor on stage, but they have so engaged their imagination in the process with us that, um, they have a full idea in their mind of those other people. And I think that's absolutely wonderful. And it's also a great credit to Deb. Hmm. Thank you. Yeah. And to you and my director. <laughs> uh, Deb, what is it like um, uh, performing uh, uh, with, with those characters on stage that aren't there but are just there for you? A lot of times when people do solo shows, they're speaking that's direct addressed to the audience and not to people on the stage. 
maybe that's what 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 David means. Some people found it found it unusual. It's fascinating to me because there's always always so many different ways to do this kind of thing. But for you, was that something you always thought of for this show that it would be to these other characters, or or did that grow out of David's uh, direction? It actually was not my first idea to have a one person show, and when I started writing it, and it, it just became. They would have been unnecessary on stage. They would have just been asking questions that Ilsa is answering. So why do they need to be there? Why do you need to have other people on stage to just ask the questions to make the story go on? I feel if you put the other people in, it would have just muddied the story because then those people would have needed their backstory and their interactions would have had to have equal time. Whereas, as David has directed me, those characters' interactions are equal to mine, but they don't have to say the full sentence. They don't have to ask the questions because I answer it for them. It's been an amazing challenge. Uh, I have never done a single show. I have done traditional theater. I have done Commedia dell'arte. I have done very immersive Renaissance theater, you know, an eight-hour day surrounded by your audience. Uh, I have done improv, dance, but this was so challenging and absolutely thrilling. And I don't feel lonely on stage. I don't feel alone at all. When we first did it for the Fringe Festival at the Helen Gardner's Theater, the tech booth was at the very back behind the audience, and I could see myself in the, the window And I thought, oh, okay. It was a little disconcerting at times, but I never felt alone because the other characters are there and I know what they're saying. I I understand the reactions. And even times when we've gone a little bit further in rehearsal and all of a sudden my reaction is different, I feel it's because of the imagination is so open between David and I that those characters truly have a life of themselves they they are there they do they they are they are now and they do um and i i i i keep repeating it but i mean i i think it's a fascinating process and it's been fascinating to watch it unfold um through our entire process with production and um we're really looking forward now to uh, seeing how a public audience now is going to uh, respond to the additional, the, the extra mile we've gone mm. with this. So mm. it's... I want to ask about, about that extra mile because you mentioned during those, those workshops and when you were rewriting it, Deborah, um, that uh, you looked at things that the critics had said and that the reviews had said, as well as things that the audience had said. Right. I do think it takes a little, a certain amount of, of, of bravery to look at what the critics say, um, and to dig between the lines. Because a lot of people don't even bother reading the reviews until after the show's over, and they go, well, that was nice, and they sort of throw it over their shoulder. But it's another thing to dig into what the reviewers are saying. Um, what, what did you find from those reviews that was particularly helpful that, that you could bring into the writing of, of this, this new version of the play? One of the things that they talked about was my reaction to what is revealed 
And they didn't quite understand how I reacted and why I reacted. So David and I talked about that. Um, And while we stand by my character's reaction, we also thought it was very important to pay attention to what the reviewer said. Because they're watching it from the outside. They weren't through Mm -hmm. the writing position. They weren't through all those rehearsals and those moments where David said, Deborah, just go full forward. Go train right into the station at full force. And then moments where he said, pull it back, pull it in, find those quiet moments within you. They weren't there for all of that. So they don't, their opinion is just as important as ours in those moments that they deserve to understand why we didn't do what they thought we should do. Uh, So we heightened moments a little bit. We created more of a connection between the other characters on stage uh, because of that interaction, that it shouldn't just be my response they're watching. They should understand what the other characters' responses are as well through me. So this is something that David and I worked on, and it, it really helped. We could have just left the, the production as it was with the Fringe Festival. We could have just said, okay, that was great. It was a good production, 10 shows, 11 days, yay, we're out. But I felt it deserved more. Well, I thought it had certainly had the potential for more, especially when I listened to people and read reviews and so forth. Um, I mean, all of that I found tremendously important. I, 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 I'm really grateful actually for people who have, you know, expressed their opinions, um, to us, uh, whether it's the audiences or the, or the, or the reviewers, um, you obviously read between the lines I mean, of what a reviewer says and you, you filter it, um, and say, okay, they perceived it in this way. Um, another one perceived it a different way. Um, but what picture comes out of all of that? You know, what, what is it? What are people getting? What are they not quite getting? Um, how are they reacting? And in some cases, how they felt cheated out of a reaction. Uh, that was, that was crucial. Actually, I, I can't elaborate on that uh, mm. without, um, <laughs> giving a total spoiler, but, uh, right. um, so we took all of those things into account in both of the, uh, rewrites that we did and, and the, um, and, and my direction, uh, of Deborah. And, uh, I think I feel, I really do feel we, we've we've addressed quite thoroughly, um, all of the things that percolated in our minds, Mm. um, after that original run at the fridge. Yeah. I mean, one of the things I've learned over the years from doing various shows is that, um, when an audience tells you something isn't working, you, you have to listen. Or we, when an audience tells you what their perception is, first of all, it's fascinating. (laughs) Um, and you, you, you have to listen to what that is. I remember years ago, I was, I was touring a production of a, of a play in the style of a silent film. And because it's a silent film and there's no dialogue, 
the audience can only know what they see on stage. There's no exposition that we can give. There's no, they can only know what they see. And so audiences would have very different opinions and thoughts about what was happening on the stage. And when we started doing the show, we would always, somebody would tell us what they thought was happening. We would correct them. But then after a while, it just became so fascinating what they were thinking was happening and what they were getting out of it. And so, you know, when we, when we would go back to it, we would, we would you know, this was unclear because they weren't getting this. What is the thing that people need to know? Because when an audience tells you what they, what they, what, what they understand about a play, that it's almost always right. True. Well, this is it. We're not, we're not up there. We're not doing this for ourselves. You know, we're doing it for the audience. We need to be communicating with the audience. And if, if some aspect of what we're doing does not communicate or communicate in the way that we want to, we have to listen to that. And I think it's a tremendous opportunity to learn and grow and to, to shape a show like this. Um, so I, I wouldn't have been without that reaction in this process. It's, it's been, it's been tremendous. I, I thank people for, for sharing their reactions with us. Um, and, um, it's, it's really what it's really been the catalyst, um, to bring this production to where it is now. And we have had some people that have seen every aspect of, it. um, they've seen it in its first run and then the two workshops. So it's interesting to have their feedback on how it's changed or what they can see in it that has changed and how they have felt towards those changes. So that's been really fantastic as well. Mm. Yeah. Um, I would be, there's a couple of things that I, now, now, David and Deb, you came together as a company. Did you come together as a company for her? That's, that's how, that's how the company came together? Yes. Okay. So the most important question that I can think of that's, that's next on my list of things is the company is called Zippy Said. So who is Zippy? Zippy was my little dog who um, allowed me to produce this show. And um, every rehearsal, she would wait for our stage manager, Jen, because we rehearsed in my apartment to settle herself on the sofa, have her book, her drink, and then Zippy would wait. And when Jen said, okay, she got up beside her and Jen stage managed the show while petting Zippy with one hand. Very important to keep the producer happy. Exactly. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. And she would, for the first rehearsal or two, she kind of walked around me because it was our living room and she's allowed to go wherever she wanted to. But then she realized, ah, Jen can rub my belly. That's what I want. <laughs> yes, you can do your stuff on stage. I'm going to get my belly rubbed. And that's what she allowed us to do. Um, I, I would do a funny thing on Instagram, Zippy said, and I would do little stories of her and how she would respond to stuff that I had done or when we were out for a walk. And that's where Zippy said came from. But my pup is gone now. Oh, she will always live in my heart, and she will always be my producer. <laughs> yeah. Um, I want to go back in time a little bit, um, because uh, you were both in the Mouse Trap. That's the Toronto Truck production, I think. Yes. Uh, of the Mouse Trap, but at different times. Yep. 
Yes, I was, I was in it uh, and then I was directing it. And while I was directing it, I ended up filling in every major role, every, every male role at uh, one time or another. So yeah, I, I was, I had, um, I had my fill of it (laughs) for sure. (laughs) And then I started it, but I didn't know David, but somebody we both knew was in the production when we were both doing it. And he became a wonderful friend for both of us. And then uh, another friend of mine got me into the university, University of Toronto, um, to work in exams. And that's where I physically met David, even though I'd heard about him before. I have to ask about that production. Because, you know, the mousetrap at Toronto Track has not been running in Toronto for quite some time. But for a while, it was... I don't know if the word is legendary or notorious. Um, and <laughs> Probably both. Yep. Yeah, I was about to say maybe both. Um, what was it like working on this? Show? I mean, this show is still running in London. Yes. <laughs> at this time. Um, but, you know, like I said, it's no longer running in Toronto. But what was it like run, what, like working on this show that ran for so long? Well, you're you're stepping into a show that's completely shaped. Um, you, you have to follow the blocking that's been established. Uh, so you, you're, there's, there's certainly limitations as an actor in what you can do, but the challenge is to, to within that, uh, those confines to make the role your own and then to find your own way to keep it fresh when you're repeating it for a very long time. So there's, there's something to be gained from every experience. And there certainly were things to be gained from that experience. And then when I directed it, then I had an opportunity to actually make some changes with the cast that was there at that time. And, uh, to the point where we all felt that, um, it was refreshed and, you know, I felt I had actually, you know, had some impact on, on the, on the production. I felt it was an excellent learning experience because, yes, you're coming into a show. You start as an understudy, as I did. You go and watch the production. You're rehearsing one night a week, and then you're on stage. Sometimes you've never worked with the cast that's there. Hmm. Sometimes you meet them the night you walk through the door and put your costume on. So it was a really unique experience. And I feel really lucky to have it when I met great people, but it was fun. And I would get on the TTC after and I could hear people, she was in the show. It was her. It was her. (laughs) It would make me laugh because people were shy to come and talk to you. But they also wanted to know, oh, my goodness, like, what do you like outside of this? Because, of course, we were English accented. But, you know, I I had a, a pen pal, a gentleman was touring Canada. And apparently he got homesick and was coming to see the mousetrap. And he really liked my accent. And he sent me a postcard from Swindon. And we wrote back and forth for another, oh, goodness, 16 years. And it was just because he felt homesick and I made him feel at home. And then his postcard, which really came at a bad time for me, was just a nice breath of fresh air and we just became pen pals and it was all because of the mousetrap. It was just, it's a, to me, a lovely, lovely story. Hmm. Hmm. 
Now, the, that experience of coming into his show and having to learn it, um, that's actually a, like such a useful experience for, for somebody. I've known people who've had that experience, but like on a Broadway stage or on like Us. a Mervish stage for a musical where like when I was in theater school, my mu our music teacher was going on uh, in, in Les Miserables for a couple of months. Oh, wow. And, and, and he would, he would say like my rehearsal process, gave me a tape and said, learn that. <laughs> and then I had to go and watch this show a bunch of times. And if I'm lucky, I'll get a rehearsal tomorrow. Oh, and then God. I'll go on. Like that was the whole process for for that show. Well, I played Casewell, and one night or one afternoon, I got a call. I had started learning the wife's part, but really wasn't one hundred percent involved in it. And then I got a call saying, "Well, you need to go on as Molly tonight." I had no clue. There were parts of mm. the show I had never seen. I'd never been on stage for. I edited a few times, but. Whoa. And my, my gentleman who played my husband was so gracious and kind. And he said, I'm going to hold your hand. And if I think you're going to miss a line, I'm going to squeeze your hand. <laughs> and he just guided me through that production that evening. That is what working in that sort of an environment was like. Very comforting. As scary mm. as that moment was, it was comforting. You knew you had people that were there to make certain you weren't going to fall flat on your face. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. There was a, a there's you know production in New York right now the 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 Back to the Future musical, and I was watching and there was some guy who was a swing and he was still learning the main role, but the guy who played Marty McFly got sick and so he had to go on. And he was like, I haven't learned most of these dances and had to go on and like frantically have the cast help him through the show, which is wild. But I mean theater right yeah yeah it's like a, an opera i was at at the coc one time and the lead uh was ill and somebody had to replace her at the very last moment i felt so i you know i think the audience is really with the person you know on stage when they're when they're having to to go through this but her first her first scene, it was bum, you know, is the only way to put it. Uh, um, and I don't know what happened between after she went off and before she came on in the next scene. But once she, when she came on for the next scene, she had it nailed and she sailed the rest of the way. But there's a, of course, there's a million stories yeah. like that, right? Yeah. I mean, during during the pandemic, when Broadway was like running out of swings and stuff, they were flying people in who played the role once. Like, ah. I know you haven't played the role in like 10 years, but can you come in and and yeah. do it like that is that's insane. But again, theater, the show goes on one way or another. Now, if Deborah, if Deborah were to um, fall ill, um, I, I don't think i don't think we could replace her david you're not prepared moment. to go on and i mean i know it's I indie theater but <laughs> you would look lovely in my costume david <laughs> you might have to shave your legs though <laughs> um i want to i want to sort of leave that show and leave the mousetrap for a moment and i want to talk about for each of you 
Um, one of my favorite things to do is to, to hear people's theater origin stories, the thing that got them into theater and that like, made them want to do this. Um, so I would love to hear from each of you. Let's start with, with David and go to Deborah. Um, what is your theater origin story? Um, the first show I ever went to in my life was as a child, and it was the unsinkable Molly Brown at a local community theater. Well, that, I was hooked from that moment on. I thought, this is magic. Um, and then when I was in high school, a few years later, I was in the, uh, they had a, a, a small drawing program, but they actually did full productions each year and stuff. So I took part in that. And then I, in university, I took one theater course, an acting course as an interest course. It, it still had never quite dawned on me that this was something to actually do, you know, with your life. Um, but after that first year, that was it. I, that was my major, um, and acting and directing became my total focus. And then my first professional production after theater school was a one person show. So my history with that form goes right back to the beginning. Hmm. Now, before I, before I uh, go over to, to Deborah, um, what was the moment when you sort of had that realization that this is a thing you could do? Because, you know, a lot of people do their community, do the community theater thing and they do, mm-hmm. you know, they do or, or they, they leave high school and they're like, I remember I did a show once and that was their, their thing. What was the moment where you were like, no, this is it. This is the thing I'm going to do. Well, it was, it was. It was just the experience of that first year drama program. Um, it was the incredible enthusiasm. We, we had a wonderful, wonderful class, which I was told many years later by somebody who was in the program that uh, our year was talked about. It was legendary. And and I, and I believe it, um, it was an amazing group of people. There was fantastic energy. There was a lot of ambition, a lot of talent. And I thought, yeah, yeah, this is something I want to be a part of, not just dip into. Hmm. Yeah. That's, I mean, yeah, I mean. The experience of being in a, in, in, in a, in a production, in a, in a class, if it's, if everything just goes right, that's, that can be everything. And yeah, for me, it definitely was. And, and I'm so glad now, obviously I ended up, um, working at U of T for over 25 years, during which time I never set foot on the stage. Hmm. Um, when I returned to it, um, Shortly before retiring, in fact, uh, at the great urging of a wonderful friend of mine, um, Bev Lewis, I'll mention her name because she actually composed uh, the uh, the bits of uh, incidental music that we use in her. Um, but she, anyway, she was the one, she was the person who actually encouraged me to make a start at um, 
performing again. And so once she had talked me into it, I, I, I took it on, um, project at hand. And, uh, I thought I, with, not with trepidation, but, um, I was really wondering what is this going to be like? Is it like getting on a bicycle, you know, but it, your, your muscle memory just sort of picks it up again. Will it be really difficult to get back into it? Um, it was neither of those. It was in fact much, much better than it had been 25 years before. I, I was, I surprised myself. I, I completely surprised myself at what I could pull out. Um, so it was, it was, um, that was my new beginning. Hmm. Hmm. Nice. Deb, what, what's, what is your, uh, theater origin story? When we came to Canada, I was just turning four and from where we lived, there was a, uh, an arena behind us. So my mother signed my brother and I both up for skating, figure skating. And so my first performance was when I was four years old and I wasn't afraid of the lights. I wasn't afraid of the darkness. I wasn't afraid of the crowds. Then I uh, started school and I went into tap and ballet. And every year, the choreographer went to all the different schools in the area, all the public schools. And then we did a big show. So each year did two numbers of the show. I loved it. My mother made my costume. She did such a fabulous job. And I really loved the whole part of it. And then um, a few years, I, I kind of went into my shell. But I had the most amazing grade eight teacher, Ms. Zabinski. And she, we did speech arts. I don't know if anybody else did speech arts, but when you got up and you spoke a poem, something you had written, you did a report on something you had studied, you did a performance. And I could barely speak in front of people. I almost passed out in grade eight from nerves. And she said to me, it's okay. You can do it next time. And I sat down and she came to me after class and she said, Everything, words to the effect, everything you have to say is just as important as the next person. She instilled such confidence in who I am that I was able to do my speech in the next class. Still nervous, of course, um, but I, I got up and I did it and I felt accomplished at that moment. Then in grade 10, there was drama class. And I knew I wanted to do drama. Uh, at the time, I was also part of what's called the drum corps. I was in the uh, color guard. So I was performing with rifles and flag. So I always kind of performed somehow. And drama class was just, I, it was the place to be. I really loved every minute of it. And I was English major, drama major. And then there was writing involved and it was kind of like, what do I want to do? And about 16, I decided theater. Theater was what I wanted. I loved being part of the stage management crew. I loved being part of costuming. I loved being part of stage. So I was always in it somehow. I went to theater school, Theater Humber, which was really a wonderful training ground. And um, I chose to also be part of stage management and costuming while performing. When I left theater school, kind of muddled around a little bit, 
didn't quite know where to put myself, made some decisions, ended up not really performing for a while, and then slowly got myself back into it. And from there, just saw this belly dance school, uh, Arabesque Academy. I kept passing it. And I finally took a class. And there's where I started performing again. I started from scratch, learning how to use my body all over again. I'd had dance training galore and theater training galore, but this was something new. And then I joined a troupe within it, a student troupe. And then another one, a little bit higher level. And boy, it was amazing to be part of it. I then costumed for the professional company. I was the stage uh, backstage coordinator for all of the shows that we did. We did the International Belly Dance Conference of Canada. So all these people came from all over the world. And while I performed as well, I was also part of the backstage, part of the, the technical side of the company. So theater's always been something I have loved. My parents being British, we were born in Belfast. Theater, live theater was always a part of their lives. So it was never anything kind of new or startling. It just was a progression. And then hadn't performed other than dance for probably about eight years. And a friend contacted me uh, the summer of 2016 and said, hey, you know, we're doing a production of Midsummer Night's Dream, four people in an hour, lots of audience participation. We only got four rehearsals. Are you in? I said, yeah, yeah. And I had to <laughs> teach myself how to learn lines again because I hadn't learned lines for years. But once I did that, and thank you, David Cairns, that was just the most amazing, fun, fun time. Um, it, it made me really want to do this again. So it was then that I started the, the need to write this play. Her. So now we've come full circle. Uh, after I performed in Midsummer Night Street, in which I was Puck, um, I felt ready to perform again. So I felt ready to write this play. And this is where I felt the confidence to get back on stage as an actor, that I could do this. Yeah. And thankfully, I had David who understood this kind of theater and took a hold of it 100% and held my hand and Every night I feel his hand holding mine every time I perform. And I know that he's 100% behind me. And, and I respect what he has done to help me get here. It's just my life. I, hmm. you know, like there was always challenges. I made decisions to get a job. I made decisions to be married and kind of put theater to the side. But it was always there and always a want. And I never felt pressured. I can do it whenever I want to. When did writing come into it? Did writing come in with her or had you written before? What, when did playwriting become a thing for you? I wrote in high school and I had a really wonderful teacher for my English writing class. And he wanted me to write more. But theater class was kind of losing at that point. It was either I go to this writing symposium every other week or I go to my theater arts class. And that was grade 13, and that was really important. So I had to put the writing to the side. But I always enjoyed stories. And my head is always filled with stories. My phone notepad is filled with 
bits of dialogue and bits and pieces of a storyline that I would like to eventually get back to. I just write it down as it comes to me. And I never thought about actually writing a play until her. It just seemed like the right time and the right thing to do. And since then, of course, we've discussed um, several other ideas. Uh They just pour out of Deb. (laughs) So we'll see what's next. I mean, that is one of the things about writing is uh, if you want to keep writing, keep writing. Because that, that writing muscle just as soon as you start doing it, there's more that happens and there's more that comes. So it's, it's always really good to, to flex that creative muscle and see what else comes out. During COVID, uh, a friend of mine who is a playwright, we went to theater school together, Mike Grant, he um, got together an online group and we read his play uh, so that we weren't, you know, copywriting anybody. And then I said to him, well, I have this other play that I've just literally finished. It's so rough. But we did a couple of readings of that, our group then, and then just me and David and with our other friend. And it was fun to hear that because there were more characters and it, it was a comedy as opposed to this one. And uh, I, I will get back to that one. My brain is just with Ilsa Brain at the moment. <laughs> it's true. It's, it's hard to write something when you're in the middle of something. I've tried to do it. And it doesn't work out so well. Yes. And things were going on during, you know, I lost my father and then I lost my zippy mm-hmm. during COVID. So mm-hmm. I wasn't really up to writing and flexing those uh, mm-hmm. artistic muscles. And David's been very patient, but I always come to him with, oh, I have this idea. Well, do it. And I'll get to them. Yeah. <laughs> I have, I'm, I don't know about you, but I have a whole like folder on my computer that is just ideas and sometimes yeah. it's a word and sometimes it's a sentence and sometimes it's a paragraph but it's, it's all over and sometimes yeah. it was somebody said something near me i heard it went oh my god i have to write that down yeah, yeah. thank god with our phones the way they work have those, those notepads that you were just like right in there it's fabulous Whereas oh i know i can, you can get that note in you get that note in so quickly you don't well, have to like take out a piece of paper so that it's that it's gone yeah and then lose perfect. that piece of paper yes yes yeah for sure for sure I've had, I have ideas that have been in there for years, but it's just the way that somebody said three words. And I'm like that, those three words, that's something. I don't know what it is, but it's something. <laughs> yes. And eventually it will be something or will be a part of something. Yes. Yeah. Absolutely. And that's what happened with the next play that I wrote, that it was conversations that happened with several different people that have no connection to each other hmm. years and years apart, but they just kind of all met in this new piece as different people and hmm. i'm really excited to get back to that one but i really love her i'm really married to ilsa yeah continuing this journey for now yeah for sure well the show runs at the red sandcastle theater in toronto from september 6th to 10th i guess you guys move into the theater like next week next tuesday and then we Ooh, open yeah. on wednesday yeah. wow okay <laughs> i know <laughs> That's always that's always a nerve wracking prospect, that whole like moving into the theater and getting ready thing. Um, But I mean, if you've done it for Fringe. Uh You can do it, right? Well, that's with the Fringe, you get used to you have to put up and take down your show every performance because somebody else is going to be using that stage in 45 minutes. So, yeah, moving in and which we did also with our 
you know, the workshops that we did, um, we staged them as fully as we could um, in the circumstances. So yeah, you know, putting this show up together <laughs> is, is kind of getting second nature. <laughs> and I have to say one thing, I had no vision for the show. I wrote it, but I gave it to David naked. Mm. And David came back with the full vision and how it is staged, the costuming. He just gave me an idea of what he wanted. I went online and found it. And then he said to me what changes he wanted made to the costume because I can do that stuff. I made those changes. But David has the full vision for her. Hmm. And I just went with it because it works fabulously. David, where did that vision come from? How did you, how did you find um, that? I couldn't really tell you. It, <laughs> it's one of those things where I, I read the script and um, I, I looked back recently because sometimes I like to do this to sort of uh, trace my thought processes through something. Um, I went back to the first notes that I sent to Deb about the script after I had read it the first time. And I thought, yeah, right then, I already, there already was this full-blown idea in my head about what this show was, what it meant, what it would look like, how it would run. Um, I don't know where that came from, but it came almost instantaneously. Now, obviously, it's been, you know, refined through the process, but it was just there when I read Deb's words. Well, thank you both for talking to me about her. And I, I, I can't wait to, to see what this show looks like in this new iteration. Thank you so much. This has been wonderful. This has been an episode of Stageworthy. Stageworthy is produced, hosted, and edited by Phil Rickaby. That's me. If you enjoyed this podcast and you listen on Apple Podcasts or Spotify, you can leave a five-star rating. And if you listen on Apple Podcasts, you can also leave a review. Those reviews and ratings help new people find the show. If you want to keep up with what's going on with Stageworthy and my other projects, you can subscribe to my newsletter by going to philrickaby.com slash subscribe. And remember, if you want to leave a tip, you'll find a link to the virtual tip jar in the show notes or on the website. You can find Stageworthy on Twitter and Instagram at StageworthyPod, and you can find the website with the complete archive of all episodes at stageworthy.ca. If you want to find me, you can find me on Twitter and Instagram at Phil Rickaby. And as I mentioned, my website is philrickaby.com. See you next week for another episode of Stageworthy. Stageworthy.